Welcome to the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. Except this isn't just another episode. It's a special episode. My name is Dara McDonald and I have three guests this week. MLB TR founder Tim Durkis, as well Yo. as my fellow writers. Hello. As well as my fellow writers, <laughs> Anthony Franco and Steve Adams. Hello. What's up? The reason we are doing a special episode is because it's a big week for us at MLB Trade Rumors. We published our biggest post of the year, the top 50 free agents with predictions. And that means everyone on the internet is mad at us and thinks that we're <laughs> stupid and thinks that we suck. <laughs> That's correct. So the four of us are going to dig in and get into the details of exactly how stupid we are and exactly why we suck. Uh, but just before we do that, I want to quickly promote our front office package because it is the best way to help us keep the lights on and stop us from starving. If you do that, that will help us out. And even if you're purely motivated by selfish reasons and don't care about us at all, it's still good for you because it's less than three bucks a month and you get all kinds of bonus content and you get rid of the ads. So do that. Uh, now Can I take a moment? Yeah. A moment. Um, uh, I want to mention our contract tracker. We just made a snazzy video kind of showing off its capabilities, which you can find on the website. And maybe we can put it into um, the post for this podcast. But um, we created the contract tracker about a year ago, and it houses like all free agent contracts and all extensions from the last, I think, 10 or 11 years. And we're going to keep going backwards and adding more data to that. Um, but I've been around the internet and I have not found a tool like our contract tracker. I found it essential in creating our top 50 free agents list. I think it it's um, it just has more data than anything you can find. And I think it is on par with the type of thing that teams and agencies use, um, like real ones. And so, you know, we, we look at things like um, what age guys sign through or how many years uh, certain positions get or you know, just what is the precedent for all kinds of contracts and free agent contracts when we're doing this list. And um, there's just no better tool. And that is included in the front office subscription. So I think you should check that out. I can second that. It's amazing. You just put, you know, we were debating Sonny Gray a lot. You know, you can go into the contract tracker and put like age 33 is the start of the contract and, you know, what kind of deals have happened for that kind of age range. It's amazing. Um but so let's dig in on this top 50. Uh, Tim, I'll start with you because you mentioned on the site this week, MLB Trade Rumors celebrated a birthday. How are, you, how are you feeling at this stage in the life of MLB Trade Rumors? Pretty good. 18 is like you're basically an adult. There's a few things you can't do, but, you know, you're starting to get treated like an adult. Um, 18 is just it's just so many years. I mean, I, I, I've thought that for the last several years, but like when you're pushing 20 years, it's just like. Man, the the early days are just such ancient history. Um, and like as much as we've changed, and it's been a lot in certain ways, like for example, just the quality of the writing and the depth of the writing compared to the early days. Um, if you look at like the last, you know, 10 to 12 years though, we have not changed that much. And we're kind of like anachronistic in a sense, like we're just like this throwback. But I think that there's I think that we have staying power. I think we've proven that. And I think that 
you know, people come, people type MLBTradeRumors.com into their browser, you know, which like these days you don't do, but like people type it in and they'd go to the homepage and they read it like it's 2008. And I think that's awesome. And I think we're still going strong. So, yeah. Um, so this was your 18th time doing the top 50 then? Uh, how um, did this one I, you, you know, I, I tried digging up some of the like really, really early lists. And aside from being like really crappy, um, <laughs> one of them, I I think maybe the first one happened on rotoauthority.com, which was my fantasy baseball website. I Maybe we did one in like 2007. And when I say we, I meant me. And I mean, um, I did it in like a day or two. And I didn't predict the contracts. Uh, I would say when we when we started predicting the contracts, it was a big step. And then, you know, when we started like incorporating um, people other than me, it was a big step because there's consensus building in terms of like, I think this contract makes the most sense for this player. Now I'm going to defend it. And, and if I say something stupid, then, you know, one of you guys will be like, that's stupid. And here's why it should be this. And then like, there's just countless times where you guys have completely changed my mind about a player and been correct. I'm like, oh, you know, if I was just looking at this by myself, and I do think some of the, some of the, uh, some of our competitors out there are just like maybe one person kind of putting out these predictions. And I think having like these long, intense debates, I don't think it's like a profitable thing to do for the company, but I think it creates the best possible list. And I'm really proud of it. Yeah, that's great. I, the consensus or the consensus building, the dialogue has been an, a, an amazing thing to be a part of. Um, so this year's crop of free agents, it's considered by some to be lesser in terms of total volume than others, but it's uh, it has some cr- incredibly unique individuals in it, I think it's fair to say, and perhaps maybe the most unique free agent of all time, Shohei Otani is at the top of the list. In your 18 years, I'm assuming you've never seen anything quite like this. No, absolutely not. I mean, we we missed the Alex Rodriguez free agency, um, which like obviously is not a two-way player. There hasn't been one, but like in terms of like just awesomeness of a free agent and just like the guy that you you're gonna shatter records with. I think I think it was A-Rod. Um, you know, we've had really good free agents over the years. Um, one of the best in recent memory was Bryce Harper. And we were like a hundred million too high on Bryce Harper, and it made uh, it made us just like revisit everything. And now we look back and we're like, ah, somebody should have actually done that deal. But um, 100%. 100%. yeah, somebody should have given him four hundred and twenty-five million dollars, and they'd probably feel pretty good about it. And in fact, they only needed to give him three hundred and thirty-five or three hundred and forty million dollars, and you know, so we were right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, there has not been. Um, there obviously has not been an Otani. And we are, you know, our contract record in our assessment is 360 million, I think. And there has not been a true $400 million deal. And we're shooting right past 500 million. So, I mean, that, that acknowledges how unique he is. Um, well, Steve, let me pivot to you. Your, your experience with this top 50 was a little bit different than some of your other top 50s that you have on your track record. Uh, yeah. So I, I was heavily involved early on. Uh, I I think a lot of people don't realize too about the top 50 list. I mean, it's, it's a lot of words. So people understand like, Hey, they put a lot of work into this, but this is something that is in the works, um, you know, going as far back as 
you know, early or mid September, like we've been, we've been at this for, for a couple of months. Um, so early on when we were doing some of the early contract debates and rankings and, and the preliminary list generation, um, I was heavily involved in that. And then, uh, I have been away from the site for five weeks on, uh, on paternity leave, welcoming a second, second boy under the age of two into my house, which is just, all kinds of chaotic and exhausting, but awesome. And then uh, we were kind of, I, I was personally and selfishly first as a baseball fan and second as, you know, for MLB trade rumors purposes, hoping that the World Series would go to seven games because that would have given me enough time to uh, to push the list back a little bit and uh, give me time to get my team picks in there. But, um, you know, the Rangers uh, made it a, a quicker one than we and certainly the Diamondbacks would have liked. And so my first day back just kind of coincided with the day that we were going to publish the list. Um, so my picks are not in there, but they'll be in, you can, you can see them uh, in the, in the free agent prediction contest, the leaderboard will be able to be sorted by traders employees. So you can see them there, but I took a step back from, from a lot of it this year. Um, but I felt great in doing so. And just like knowing that, you know, we had the, the three of you, um, you know, for those who don't know, like Dara, this is this is your, kind of like your first time or maybe your second time, like going through the top 50 list. And I think this is Anthony's third year as a, as a full timer. So like it just it, it felt great for me to be able to, to step back and just kind of know like the quality of the, the analysis and the insight and the debate and the rhetoric and everything that goes into this, you know, and just like knowing how good of a job you guys were going to do was was awesome. So thank you for that. And I think the list, you know, as, as always, is, is something that we can all be super proud of. Well, thank you for that, and uh, congratulations on the uh, new addition to the family. And uh, pivoting from that, uh, Anthony, you had to uh, take on a larger role with Steve being away. How did you feel about uh, your experience with the top 50 this time around? Yeah, it was exciting. Uh, like Steve mentioned, it's my third time working on the deliberations, but this is my first time writing the bulk of the list. Uh, which Sorry was... about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, fun. It, was, it was pretty surreal because... It's a post that, you know, long before I started working at the site was like the must read bookmark post. Like, oh, I can't wait for the MLBTR top 50. And to be like seven or eight years later, actually writing it is is pretty crazy. I remember referencing some old contract in our debates and Anthony's like, yeah, I was in junior high when that happened. I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> Um, okay, so we touched on Otani a little bit. I mean, what do you say about Otani at this point? Uh, who has strong hot takes that Otani is very good that they want to share? <laughs> I mean, how do you? I guess the question is, how do you? There's usually to do this thing. You uh, you look for comps, right? You look for comparable contracts. But if there's no comparable, how do you do it? I think when we when we one thing we did before we had debates as we each listed our own numbers to see where we would land um, without each other's influence. And I, I do think we were all in that 500 million or or beyond range. And I think the conclusion, which is actually interesting, I think we each independently came to this before we had our discussion was that him not pitching for a year and the attending uncertainty around his pitching future while it does dock his total contract, it doesn't stop it from being a massive, insane record contract. Um, and then Steve and Anthony were both making really good points about like, if he were to never pitch again, he'd be an extremely valuable baseball player, um, just like as a right fielder and stuff. And and I, I do think he's going to pitch again, and I do think he's going to be effective again, but certainly there's like a decent non-zero chance of something going wrong. And so, like, he's just so valuable. He's so 
he's so marketable um, that that's we, we just had to give him a huge number. Yeah, Steve and I, I think both independently picked the same number. We both ended up, I think it was 504 uh, to start. Ended up coming up a little bit from that, but it was like, oh, okay, you know, let's uh, let's map this out. Here's a free agent who's unlike anything we've ever seen. You guys each pick your own number, go. And uh, Steve and I came out at the exact same one. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just <laughs> that that was that doesn't happen too often. Um, I think it just speaks to the inevitable like hive mind that comes from doing this job full time, but also to, <laughs> like Otani's excellence. Um, I think there's a, a stigma that like he's only this good because he can do both things so well, but it's, uh, you know, you look at, he's two years younger as a free agent than Aaron judge was when he was a free agent. And he is like, maybe not quite as good of a hitter or like at least didn't have quite as good of a platform season as, as judge, but you know, the, the age matters greatly in, in free agency. And so like, based on that alone, almost he, you can argue like he needs to to have a higher, higher contract than judge did. And then that doesn't even bake in the fact uh, that I also see a lot of people say, oh, well, he's, you know, if he can't pitch again, he's just a designated hitter. And it's, well, that's not true. Like he, he has, I, I don't, I don't have his, his stat cast page in front of me or whatever, but 80th or 90th percentile sprint speed in baseball, you see the bases that he steals. Like he's a, he's a freak athlete. Obviously he's played outfield in Japan. The, the angels put him out there for a, a few innings. It's not something that he's been practicing and working on regularly, but I think given I, I think there's a disconnect if you say he's this good of a pitcher and this good of a hitter, but he can't reasonably be expected to play a, an average or better, you know, corner outfield. I mean, if, if he has like the insane generational athleticism to pitch and hit at, at these levels, then I think you obviously also have to figure that he has the athleticism to at, at bare minimum be a passable left fielder, if not like a plus defensive right fielder, in which case then you just take a hitter who's almost as good as judge who has the tools to be, you know, a plus defensive right fielder is two years younger when he hits the market. And then also is beyond that, just off the field, the most marketable athlete, like we've seen in our lifetimes, it's certainly at least the most marketable baseball player we've seen in our lifetimes. Um, and all of the, the revenue that could be generated on that front, why wouldn't he, you know, command this massive contract and and to Tim's point, you know, I, I do think he'll pitch again. I think he'll pitch effectively again. I don't know how many years he has left as a top of the rotation starter, but he can move to the bullpen. He could settle in as just like quote only, you know, a, a number three or number four starter. And even if he can do that capably and still hit anywhere near the level that he's currently at, like that's just, it's, it's still an overwhelmingly immensely valuable player and still one of the best players, probably still the best player in baseball. It just occurred to me, and I don't think we ever even talked about this. We all kind of assume that if he dropped pitching, um, he'd be on a corner. But I mean, in the vein yeah. of Aaron Judge playing some center field capably, like you just cited all, all his athleticism, his speed and everything. He could play center field. Um, Potentially, sure. I, I think he would have to drop pitching entirely to go do that. But if he was 32 and his elbow wasn't holding up, and, you know, his team said, look, I want him to be a center fielder for three years um, for him to be above average at that. I mean, he's Shohei Otani. Like, who's to yeah. say he couldn't? And so, yeah, I mean, at bottom of the scale, he winds up as a left fielder, most likely winds up as a right fielder. But like he could actually play, um, you know, the most valuable outfield position, be an up the middle guy who also hits way beyond any center fielder except like Mickey Mantle or something. So, yeah, there's just so many paths to like getting your money's worth there. Yeah. 
And uh, you mentioned his age, and I think this is going to be a thing that comes up a few times uh, with the top 50, is that we, for a few years now, we've sort of operated with these assumptions that teams don't want to go really, really long on contracts, that that was sort of seemed to be a sort of industry thing for a while. But then we saw a big pivot last year, and maybe a little bit the year before that, where teams were far more willing to go to, you know, a guy's age 38, 39, 40 season, whatever, to get a deal done. And so we have some really long contracts. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Otani, we have uh, 12 years on him. And we also have 12 years on Bellinger, which I think was something that really surprised a lot of people. But he's young. Surprise, he's super young. Surprise is a nice way of putting it. I think <laughs> yeah, we gotta like... talk. We gotta talk about Cody Bellinger. Um, Cody Bellinger is the one where in the comments section on that post, um, we took a ton of flack, and yeah. I'm pretty sure Stephen Anthony had long contracts, but I'm not sure if they were at 12 years out of the gate. But like, I was, I was at 11. Okay, and so like, here's why we did that. Um, and it is last winter. It's last winter we saw. We're kind of suggesting that it's a trend and we could be wrong. But, you know, in the past, you had like the Anthony Rendon, a $35 million average annual value value contract. Um, and then so last offseason, you had Trey Turner and Xander Bogarts and Brandon Nimmo. And so those are three really good examples of, of really good position players of kind of varying calibers, too, I think, who are kind of in the star caliber and one who's maybe a tiny notch below and and Nimmo. And so in Nimmo, we put a five-year contract on him. He signed for eight. We put seven years on Bogarts. He signed for 11. And we put eight years on Turner and he signed for 11. And all three of them signed for a much lower average annual value than we thought and way lower than like a, a Rendon, you know, like they were 25 instead of 35. And the logic of this just makes sense. I mean, it's better for the team to spread this out over a longer period of time. And the main thing is that most of the teams signing superstar players are are paying the competitive balance tax or at least like brushing up against it. And so if you can take uh, a $35 million salary and bring it down to 25, um, then you're going to pay less taxes along the way. And owners hate paying that tax. And so I, I made notes after that offseason, like, where do we go wrong? How how will we change for, for the 2023 to 24 offseason? And one of, one of my main notes was start with the total and then kind of work backward on the years because the years don't matter the way that they used to. The old, the old thing where we just will not pay a guy past the age of 36, that ended because Turner and Bogarts got paid from age 30 through 40. And that that basically killed something that had gone on for for like a like a decade or something. And so with Bellinger, who is 28, um, I mean, this contract 12 years pays him through the age of 39. And so I was I wouldn't be shocked if somehow there was a 13th year put on there. I mean, it's kind of all the same 10, 11, 12, 13. It's like, how badly do you want to reduce the average annual value of this contract? And so. I guess the main point of debate with Bellinger is like, well, is he like a star player or is he like a George Springer, which some people seem to think kind of he is. And I guess we're kind of putting a lot of weight in the current season and then in what he did before he was hurt. Yeah. And I think to, um, to just further expand upon your point 
what a team's buying basically when they sign Cody Bellinger is you're buying the rest of his career because he's not going to sign like a four or a five year contract and go back to free agency. Like that's not not coming off of the type of season that he had, not in a market this devoid of of strong offensive performers, which is a huge factor in his in his, in our prediction for him. There's beyond Otani and Bellinger, there's just really very few impact bats. And then you consider that you know he's a Scott Boris client. He's Scott Boris's top client this offseason, and 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 Boris has a history of kind of getting the the big mega deals for his top guys. You're basically saying if you're a team, we we want Cody Bellinger for the rest of his career. And so what's that going to cost? And then how do we want to, you know, disperse the payment of that sum? And so for us, you know, initially my thought process as the, as the year went on kind of went from like, you know, early on, oh man, maybe Bellinger might be like looking at a nine figure contract this year to, oh man, Bellinger, like he's, he's coming up on, he's going to probably end up getting more than Chris Bryant did. And and suddenly it was, well, if he's going to get more than Bryant, like he's probably going to get more than $200 million. Um, and then the more you just look at the market circumstances, the lack of impact bats and everything, like the round number that I kind of like am assuming that the you know Boris Corporation is going to want to put on the rest of his career is that $250 million mark. And it, it sounds out, outlandish and it is, but that's the kind of the, the price for you know, star players who are being marketed. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, early in the offseason, there are reports or whatever of like, oh, you know, Boris is looking for $300 million for Bellinger because, you know, you obviously start negotiating, you know, by aiming higher than you're actually, you know, expecting to land. But yeah, I, I just think given the the quality of player he was before the, the injured seasons, um, the general strength of his rebound, the lack of the market, um, the lack of alternative options, on the market, both in terms of impact hitters and in terms of, you know, quality center fielders, there's just so many factors working in his favor and yeah, a quarter of a billion dollars for the rest of his career. I I don't think it's crazy. You know, I, I think if, you know, he hadn't had that shoulder injury and, and had those two lost years, like Bellinger would have been, you know, looking at the, you know, the first true $400 million contract um, in baseball history this off season. So, you know, if he had just continued on the trajectory that he was on as like a rookie of the year MVP level, like elite player who can play all three outfield spots and first base and hit free agency as a 28 year old. I mean, yeah, he'd be getting $400 million easily. Yeah. One of the things that came up for me with Bellinger too. Um, and I think I was a little lower than you guys. I think I, I ended up, I started at like nine years and a little above 200. And I think you talked me up to like the 240 range, but I, the thing that I kept coming back to was the fact that when you're talking about an investment that big, it's kind of a, a push that you're making to ownership as much as to the front office. And you can sell this guy, I mean, so easily, right? Because it's, oh, he's very young. He plays up the middle. He won an MVP. Then, yeah, he was bad for two years, but he got hurt. Look, now he's healthy. He went to a new team. He hit again. He's back. And I think that's a very easy case to to pitch to an ownership group that's looking for star talent and once they miss out on Otani you know it's just like is Bellinger a bigger move than Brandon Nimmo who got 162 million dollars last year yes I mean it's just like he's a much easier player to sell and we've seen there were warning signs with Chris Bryant when he got in like the 180 range he has less defensive value than Bellinger does he had had a, a down 2020 season his battle ball metrics were just okay and the Rockies paid him anyways, based on the fact that he was Chris Bryant and he's still pretty good, even if he's not the MVP caliber player that he was a couple of years ago. And that kind of predated what Tim was referencing with the decade long, uh, the like explosion of decade long contracts 
at the top of the market last year. So, you know, it's I would take the slight under probably on the number that we ended up with for the site. But I was talking to Tim about this last week. Like, if you would told me, and to be clear, I don't think either of these things will happen. But if you had told me, A, either Bellinger is going to stay under 200 million or B, he goes over 300, I would choose B. Like, I think he'll end up between two and 300, but I would be more surprised if he comes up under two than above three. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, one comp that, that I did put some stock into was Bogarts. Um, I know that Bogarts is a shortstop, but Bogarts had his own red flags. Um, yeah. I think primarily being that, Nobody felt that great about him as a long-term shortstop. And in fact, I think I've read that they're considering moving him off shortstop already. And so you look at Bogarts and you look at 280 on Bogarts and, and like some percentage of that is the Padres doing something crazy. And I would be fascinated to know the true second highest bid on Bogarts. I don't know if that was 220 or if it was 260 or what it was, but to me, Bogarts at, was actually a little bit older than Bellinger is going to be. Is an up-the-middle player with at least some flaws or red flags. He does have a better track record in terms of not having like lost seasons and stuff. Totally get that. One reason that I put him below. Um, but to me, the, the case is pretty similar that the number has to be huge. And I, I do think I do agree with Anthony in general. Like, if this was like 240, which I seriously considered just dropping down to yesterday. I mean, when we're picking numbers this large, we're trying to be accurate. But yeah, there's there's a range here. And I, I feel good over 200. I feel good in the 250 range. And I do not feel good below 200. And I have looked around after we published our list of what other people are doing on Bellinger. And the consensus is that, is that he's below 200. So this is us planting a flag and saying that Bellinger is, get, is getting more than 200 and quite possibly significantly more. And if that's wrong, we're going to own it, man. I mean, people are yeah. people are going to let us know, and that's fine. Like, hey, we just spent the last 10 minutes of this podcast explaining this choice. I think it's logic-based, and I, I would love to hear a logic-based defense of $160 million for Bellinger. I'd love to hear it, man. Like, go, go put that out there and, and tell me which one you think is better. Yeah, I mean, there's no way he's not as good as Nimmo, so that would make no sense. And, I mean, I don't know if there's any way to know this, but this is going to be, by a long shot, the biggest contract for a, a non-tendered player, assuming that our prediction is anywhere close to correct, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's Rodan, right? That sounds yeah. right. Right, yeah. And that was a wild progression in his own right, like non-tendered to $3 million to $44 million to $162 million mm-hmm. in a span of, like, three years. But, I mean... Yeah, Bellinger, Bellinger could top that. You know, we've we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of non-tenders in recent years of those like five-year non-tenders. Like Kyle Schwarber had a, a similar kind of like rise to um, you know he got non-tendered, then got more money than he was projected to get arbitration on a one-year deal, and then you know took that to, to seventy-nine million. So, uh, okay, so we we uh, sort of slid past uh, team predictions on Otani. Uh, we we were unanimous on him. Uh, the three of us, Tim, Anthony, and myself, we all put the Dodgers, and then on Bellinger. Yeah, <laughs> you want to you want to take us to task on that, Steve? I'm not. I'm just. I'm just not going to pick the Dodgers. That's all. And, and before I. I just, I'm probably going to put them on the Rangers and just keep their insane spending going. But I mean, it's the point that I'm going to make here is what, what I'm sure, where I'm sure you were going. So keep, keep on going, Dara. I'm sorry to interject. 
Well, I think, you know, we spend a lot of time on uh, a lot of time is spent on the numbers and the years and the dollars and all that kind of stuff. And I think uh, we care a great deal about, you know, if those numbers are arguably uh, defensible, the team predictions, it's tough because, you know, any given free agent, you can probably come up with like 10, 12, I don't know, 20 fits, depending on the free agent. Do you want to share some thoughts on on this? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the team picks are not the focus of the list and they are not where we put most of our time. Um, when I respond to comments about this, I use the word plausible a lot. Um, I think that anybody projecting certainty about which teams players will sign with um, are wrongly confident. And so I don't like to project that. I don't even like to project that too much with the contracts because we see ones that blow our minds every winter. But like you said, there's there's usually a lot of teams that make sense and that are plausible for a given player. Maybe there's fewer teams for Otani or whatever. But, you know, if you're trying to make a prediction on number 30 on our list, yeah, I mean, there's tons of teams. And I think if you look back at that offseason where the Rangers signed Seager and Semyon, if one of us had predicted that they signed both, you know, we would have been like just skewered for that. And so yeah. I, I don't like when our picks happen to agree. Um, like the idea that Otani on the Dodgers or Hader on the Rangers or Nola on the Cardinals. Um, it's really just each of us trying to make a plausible pick for the player and maybe thinking that Nola has a 20% chance of signing with this team and an 18% chance of signing with that team. And since we already used one of our top 50 picks on that other team, we need to put Nola here because we also like within one person making picks, we like to have them have some level of balance and kind of fit together, even though they don't account for the players who are not in the top 50. They don't account for trades. And in real life, there's actually not balance. There's teams that just don't do anything that we thought were going to. There's teams that sign three guys out of the top top 20. Um, these things happen all the time. And so people will be like, oh, you know, I can't believe that you guys put these players on the Red Sox and didn't put Yamamoto. And it's like, well, you know, I think the Red Sox could sign Yamamoto. Uh, absolutely, man. Like there's, we are not making a statement that the Red Sox won't sign him, that they won't be in on him or that it would be implausible for them to sign him. So you might be hitting control F and just looking for Red Sox on our list and kind of getting mad. Um, but that is not really the logic that we're using here. Yeah, and I, th- I think too, it's it's so early in the off season, and and there's just no way of like having any certainty of how the market's going to play out. You can't really confidently make team picks. You're just trying to come up with, like you said, one plausible scenario, picking teams um, for these guys, and and doing so, I think in a, in a way where like it looks financially feasible as well. It's not. And you did this one year, even like you, I think there's the one year where you just like did it context free. And it's like, well, the Cubs make sense for this guy. So we're going to put him and you picked like eight guys to go to the Cubs and people blew up that way because people it's like, oh my hated gosh. that. I, I yep. gave the Cubs, yep. like I looked at each player in a vacuum and not yes. whether, you know, I put the Cubs on this player and I didn't not put the Cubs on this other player as a result. And I just said, for, yeah. you know, and, and people got so mad. And so, yeah, like you said, we moved from the one pick to to like three or four from, from a bunch of us just to kind of be like, here's some different options. And and so in the post on the bigger names, I think we also like to list a lot of the different options that we yeah. think are plausible. And then we are going to do some posts 
where we just look at Yamamoto and we name the likely, the possible, and the dark horse suitors for him. And I think we can assess that really well for our readers and we'd love to do it. And that's how we look at these things. And we don't look at it with certainty and we don't, you know, if if there's a surprising signing, um, that rules. I love that. I, yeah. I hope the Orioles do some crazy shit. And I think that's cool. And <laughs> let's do that, man. Like, I don't want it to be the obvious pick. I don't want Nola to go to the Cardinals, man. I want like Steve, a- Steve Adams has been pushing this Josh Hader to the A's thing. And I, then... <laughs> that, is, that is so untrue. That is, that is categorically untrue. I would like to, this, that is slander. <laughs> I have said no such thing. Um, I would like to, do we ever do this? Did you ever go back like two years ago and look in our free agent prediction contest and see how many people picked Carlos Correa to sign with the twins? Like that was like, yeah, like I do look at that. And yeah, I mean, people's picks. That that stuff is so fun when that happens. Yeah, like that's, like, people no one pick, has that. People's picks are often lined up with ours and I think influenced by it. And I see some of that. But like, you'll have those like 10 guys out of 6,000 who who got the dark horse correct. And I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, man. That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you, Tim, for opening the floodgates on cursing on this podcast. That's good uh, to know. Well, <laughs> uh, way to go, foul mouth site leader. Here, here comes the deluge for me now. Um, going down to number three on the list, we have another uh, chance at something incredibly unique. Uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, I think, very good chance of being like the highest paid guy ever with no MLB experience. Does that sound? plausible like tanaka any cuban guys like nobody's come close to what we're predicting for this guy yeah, I, I think, think you're right on that yeah i mean yeah. you know we were at 200 million for a while on yamamoto and um we just kept i think we just kept thinking about all the teams that are probably going to go after him but will not go after blake snell and might not go after uh nola nola or montgomery and we're like well yamamoto is 25 and he is unique in an exceptional case, and he's so young, and he's about as close to proving yourself ready to be really good in MLB without actually having pitched an MLB that a person can be. And so I think that there's just going to be teams falling all over themselves. So we pushed it all the way to 225. Um, I'm not too certain about the number of years. I think that that's to some degree a personal preference of the player. Um, but then we also, I think are projecting probably an opt out clause in there somewhere. Um, he does have a lot of leverage and I think that if he wants to put one in the middle and have the ability to not necessarily just go back to the market, get to get more money, although that's a big part of it, but also like, God, I don't like the fit here or, um, this team isn't competitive anymore. And so I think the very best players typically have the leverage to get that. And I think that he, he should be able to. Well, because we've been talking about the uh, the extra long contracts already on the podcast, you know, uh, Bogarts and Turner in the past, and we're expecting the same with Bellinger and uh, Otani. But uh, with a, with pitching, it's different. It's what is Cole's nine years still the longest for a pitcher, at least in recent memory? Would you say? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that I think that there's um, some weird free agent signing in like the seventies that was ten years. Ten years, yeah, yeah. But like in any meaningful sense, it's nine. Right. Well, it would be interesting to see because, like you mentioned, he's 25. So free agents normally are not this young, uh, especially not pitchers. So, uh, you know, nine years. I don't know. Do you think he can get to Cole? I guess. I mean, we're predicting that he will. So 
in terms of length, yeah, like not in terms of like the obvious like overall guarantee, but he's debuting or he well he'll be he'll be debuting in the majors at a comparable age to a lot of homegrown you know minor league players just naturally like coming up to the minor leagues and he's already had you know whatever it is seven years of experience pitching professionally in japan and doing so at such a high level um that's just yeah it's 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 wildly uncommon for for a pitcher of of this age to hit the market and the demand is going to be so intense i think especially too one thing to consider is that heading into the year we thought it was going to be and it still is to some extent but like we were looking and kind of marveling at the number of um, potential frontline starting pitchers who were going to be on the market. And, and almost every single one of them had some something go wrong, uh, had some kind of red flag pop up or, or had, had a down season. You know, Aaron Nola didn't pitch to his expectations. Lucas Giolito had a disastrous year. You know, uh, Julio Urias was in there and, and he has the, the domestic allegations against him right now for, for a second time in his career. And, and who knows what's going to happen uh, uh, with him and and you just like one after another these these things popped up and uh, outside of you know Jordan Montgomery you know really improved his stock Blake Snell had a great season and, and improved his stock but most of the the big names on that that pitching front um, don't look as appealing as they did uh, early in the year and Yamamoto just like went out and just like mowed through the entire league in Japan um, and and has I think only elevated his stock and and really capped it with a with a flourish with that 14 strikeout uh, game in the Japan series so he's kind of done everything he could possibly do and I think given the way that some of the rest of the pitching class in general at large has kind of wilted a little bit he he only looks you know all the more appealing and when you have that type of platform that type of demand for him and at this age it's it's just a it's a perfect storm for him yeah I think it's pretty rare for guys coming over from either NPB or KBO to be this universally loved and I mean yeah. it makes sense because he's been the best pitcher in Japan for three consecutive years and Everyone who we talked to is like, yeah, this guy's so much better than Kodai Senga, who was awesome as a rookie. And again, I mean, we've talked about the age, but he's as young a free agent pitcher as we've seen since Tanaka. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times with the KBO or NPV guys, they have really wide error bars when they come over because so much of it is dependent on how teams evaluate and different scouts have different opinions on whether this guy with good performance will translate against higher level competition. And that's just nobody questions that with Yamamoto. It's just like the people who love him think he's an ace and the people who, quote unquote, don't like him think he's like a high end number two. Like, it's just everybody loves this guy. Uh, Well, he starts a run of four pitchers at the three through six slots on the list. There was much debate about the three guys that followed him, Snell, uh, Montgomery and Nola. Who was who was backing which horse in this one? Do we want to flip uh, the you, Dar, since you <laughs> have been driving the Snell bandwagon for the entire season? I was driving the Snell bandwagon. Uh yeah. And it got it got away from me to the point where I was trying to pull on the reins uh when the list was uh coming out. He's such can you think of a recent pitcher who's like Snell at all, who no. just like walks everybody but somehow gets away with it every time? <laughs> Um, yeah, the get away with it part is the part that... Yeah, I, I can um, think of lots of pitchers who walk everybody. Yeah. I can't think of any who win a Cy Young while doing it, no, and, and Snell probably will. You know who used to walk that tightrope pretty well, if I'm recalling correctly, is Doug Davis? That is a, that's a pull. Yeah, right? I mean, didn't, I'll have to look that up, but I felt like he struck guys out a lot for his era and then, like, put tons of them on base and somehow wiggled out of it and... 
Yeah, I mean, there's Victor Zambrano, like, but for a guy to like do that at this level, it's like, I and I think there's numbers to back this up, but like he would like just not throw guys hittable pitches, and it weirdly worked. And I I think I heard Boris on a podcast, and I think he was trying to sell the walks as a positive. I'm like, eh, <laughs> well, that's an interesting one. Um, so no, they're not. That's not a good thing. But I think that you can create a narrative around like why he walks guys and why it's uniquely okay. Whether that's actually true, I think we're all pretty skeptical of that. I think we all kind of think that even if we don't know which team it's going to be, that somebody's going to give him something in the range of two hundred million dollars or something, you know, really impressive. I don't think we all, we really think it's going to be a great idea. Nope. Here, here's something I just thought of, and uh, you can tell me if this makes any sense at all. I know like with hitting philosophy in recent years, there's been sort of with some of the three true outcome guys, there's sort of a thing of like you look for a pitch in the middle and if the pitcher throws a perfect strike on the corner, you just take it and strike out. And so like this, like these Max Muncy types who strike out 30% of the time, it's like that's fine because whenever the pitch is over the middle of the plate, I'm going to hit it 400 feet. And so maybe with Snell, maybe what Boris was trying to say, I don't know, is that like, I'm going to throw this curveball just two inches out of the zone every time. And if the guy can lay off it and take, take a walk, fine. I don't care. He gets first base. I'm going to strike out the next three guys. So it doesn't matter. Is this at all? <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, he went ahead maybe. and did it. So, I mean, whether he can do it for six or seven years, I don't, yeah. I don't there's know. Also, there's also, I mean, if you're, if you're really spotting it that well, just a couple inches off the plate, you're going to get some of those called too, even if the guy does take it. So, I mean, like, you know, there's maybe something to that, but I think, I think, you know, I've, I've watched plenty of Blake Snell starts too. And that, you know, I've seen him just, look completely lost for like two or three innings and then suddenly he just like wakes up the guy can flip a switch like i've never seen before uh in in one direction or the other um i think he's personally fun to watch because it's like you don't like inning to inning batter to batter game to game you don't know what you're gonna get this is another point i I think we should make too like just with the list at large like we're saying 200 million dollars on snell we said 250 264 250 on on bellinger etc we're not saying like, Hey, this is a good idea. Like we're not saying this is if I were a GM and I were running a team, this is what I would offer. Like, yeah, these are not endorsements. No, it's just, we're looking at the, the market and the history and the context and saying, this is where we think this player will land. Like, I think Blake Snell will land around $200 million. I think it's a terrible idea because he his his, his command is just untenable. Like winning the bidding on a free agent means you're almost always especially a top free agent means you're almost always making like a not great deal you're basically saying we're willing to pay you more than anybody else and inherently in that yeah it it is not going to be a great value so we had wide disparity on teams for this batch uh from yamamoto to montgomery and nola and snell giants yankees phillies red sox dodgers cardinals rangers mets they all make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think any of those teams could and will try to bring in a, a top level starting pitcher. Um, I mean, I think a lot of them have already basically gone on record as, as saying that they'll be in the mix, at least for Yamamoto. I think more people are kind of comfortable putting their name out there with Yamamoto than with Snell. But ultimately, only one team can get Yamamoto and there are going to be plenty of teams who are still in on Snell. But uh, I mean, I think these are the guys where more than the rest of the pitchers in the class, and we'll get to Montgomery and Nola, uh, I assume, in a minute. But 
these are the two where you can look at it and say like, hey, this is our chance to sign a true game one playoff starter. This is the guy that we're going to make, you know, like an offseason priority uh, if we don't get Otani. One thing one thing I'm interested to see is whether some of these teams are kind of kind of maybe stick to their guns of how they've been historically with long term deals for pitching. And if some are just going to completely kind of break that mold and go ahead and get a guy like the Dodgers, they did sign Zach Granke back in the day, fairly long ago for six years, but they really haven't done like these uh, six, seven year deals for free agent starting pitchers that I can recall. And um, I would, the same is true of the Red Sox and they did change GMs. And I think there's this feeling of, we don't know what Craig Breslow is going to do. So Anthony, I mean, this is a good one to bring up to me. It just doesn't seem like he doesn't seem like the type to go in and to hire, to go sign Blake Snell. Like that was a very much a Dombrowski thing. And, and then Dombrowski usually does go and do stuff like that. But like, to me, it's a little like, well, anybody could sign Blake Snell, man. I hired this guy to do smart stuff. Yeah. I mean, I guess we'll see. Uh, you know, it's tough to have specific conclusions as to how Brother is going to operate until yeah. we see him leading baseball ops. I mean, I do think that it does seem like a little bit of a, a contrary message for the Red Sox after years of kind of scaling it back to then go and sign a guy at the top of the market who at least the four of us all seem to think is like maybe not a great investment. Um, but at the same time, I just looked at it and Boston has a ton of financial flexibility if they're, you know, I mean, we'll see what ownership's willing to green light, but they've spent a lot more than they have committed uh, right now in in prior off seasons. And they just don't have really a single starting pitcher that I feel great about. There's a lot of talent in the in-house options, but they all have varying questions about whether it's injuries or a bad second half in Brian Bayo's case, or maybe they're better suited as relievers and they haven't really shown that they can hold up as starters. And ultimately, I think they're going to be very motivated to flip the switch and get back, you know, competing at the top of the AL East and going after a top flight starting pitcher, I think is the cleanest way to do that. Yeah. And there's a certain desperation in some of the top free agent contracts. And I think that maybe you can look at past actions and try to project who's going to be desperate, but you don't, you often don't know until they actually start acting desperate. Um, I think. I think we all kind of put the Giants on some major names because they really, really tried to throw a lot of money at a player last winter and then they failed. And now it's like, well, the money's still there. The desperation seems to be up. So we're just going to put them on that type of player again. And man, they're going to have to come away with somebody eventually. Yeah, I would say it's not just last offseason either and not just I mean, they tried with Judge and with Carlos Correa last year. But I mean, they were heavy after Bryce Harper, too, and and stopped at, you know, 12 years and 310 or 315. And like you look back at that now and and how much is ownership kicking itself for just saying like, yeah, we wouldn't go to 350 on Bryce Harper. And, you know, I mean, he's making twenty five million dollars a year right now and it looks like a bargain. Um, So I think to your point, Tim the Giants have been one of those teams too under Farhan Zaidi that don't want to do the long-term deals for pitchers, even, you know, after they like rehabbed Kevin Gossman all the way to like the moon and made him this like ace level, like God to your pitcher. They just kind of were happy to let him walk at five years and, and 110, which is obviously a sizable contract. But I mean, the, the Giants are are, are, a, are a high payroll team with deep pockets who, who had a clear need in the rotation. And I think they kind of just said like, Oh, well, we can just do this again. 
And you wonder, will that play into things like in terms of their pursuit of, if not a Snell, then a Yamamoto? And will that, you know, motivate them more to say like, okay, we will go long-term. Yeah. Like there's, they, I would be surprised if the Giants don't sign like a major, major free agent contract this off season. Yeah. And it's kind of like if, if you have a history of operating a certain way and it hasn't really worked, should we then assume that you're going to like do the opposite of the thing that didn't work? Um, and then, you know, like how much evidence did you, do you need that your strategy didn't work? I mean, on a smaller scale, I look at the Cubs bullpen. I look at how Jed Hoyer has kind of taken this, like, I'm going to sign nobody for more than $5 million in one year. And I'm just going to keep doing this. And he had a little run where he found like Ryan Tapera and Andrew Chafin and stuff. And then last winter, he, he got Michael Fulmer and Brad Boxberger. And you can make a case that if he'd chosen better, the Cubs would have made the playoffs this year. And so... Yeah. Then you ask yourself, is that just a blip and he's going to keep doing that? Or is he going to go sign? I don't think he's going to go sign Josh Hader, but is he going to go sign one of these three-year, $30 million guys that are inherently more risky, but seem uh, more risky on an ROI type of standpoint, but seem more likely to be good? Um, You know, is he going to switch it up and and, and go do the opposite thing because it failed once? I I don't really know. Well, let's... uh quickly talk about nolan montgomery because i think we had a lot of debate about them because they we ended up in a very similar place in terms of the prediction we have 150 on montgomery and oh, 150 on both and so we did end both, up yeah. even but they're coming into free agency uh, in different ways because like nola i think it's fair to say has the stronger overall track record but montgomery the better recent track record so you know who's how are teams going to value the last three years versus the last eight years what do you think precedent says there? Steve and I talked a lot about this yesterday. And ultimately, after like hours of discussion, we threw up our hands and put the same same contract on both guys. Um, so we we talked a lot about how Montgomery pitched his way up to this contract. And this is kind of like the ceiling of, of what he could have gotten and how Nola pitched his way down to it. And how before this season, um, I think we were all above 200 million on Nola. And then he went and pitched like, you know, another 450 ERA season, which now makes two of the last three. And even though he did pitch well in the playoffs, he did not pitch well in the second half. And I have to think his stock is down a little bit from where it was before the season, whereas Montgomery's on the rise. But then I think Steve has pointed out that like the bad Nola strikeout rate is still higher than the good Montgomery strikeout rate. Um, but I think ERA it probably still matters here. And I mean, Steve, do you want to elaborate on how we wound up here? Well, I think it just speaks to, and one of the points that I made, and this isn't like us, like, or like me specifically, I guess, like patting ourselves on the back or anything, but like, we're like fairly good at like reading markets. Um, and, and we have some misses every year, of course you're going to, but like, I think in general, like we usually have a pretty good sense of where things are going to go. And we're sitting here struggling between you know, is Nola going to get to 160? Is he going to end up having to be more 150, 140? You know, is 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 Montgomery going to work his way up to that level? And we kind of kept talking ourselves in circles. And it just, it just, I think, speaks to the fact that if we are so conflicted on this, there's probably going to be a pretty diverse range of opinions across the industry as well. Like, I don't know that there's necessarily going to be one, you know, consensus among all teams, all 30 teams, like have Aaron Nola for sure slam dunk ahead of Jordan Montgomery. I don't think that's the case. Um it just kind of like feels like there's not going to be that consensus. And because of that, because some teams are going to prefer one to the other, 
we basically are saying we think these guys are comparable, that they're in the same range. And so why not just put them down? We're not necessarily saying, I, at least I'm not like the, that's my exact pick for these two guys. If Nola signs for six years and $164 million and Jordan Montgomery signs for six years and 143, like whatever, like I will still look at that and be like, that was like, those were good picks. Cause we were like, you know, right, right there in the right vicinity. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately putting down the same contract for them just speaks to uh, the perhaps unexpected seasons in opposite directions that the two have had and that they've kind of pitched themselves into this one B tier right behind the one A guys ahead of them. Let me let me ask each of you guys this question. Which of our top 50 contract predictions do you have the least confidence in? In terms of the any of the, the NPB guys, or <laughs> just like which one do you think the has the potential to be the most wrong? Man, that's a good one. I almost feel like we should exclude like Jung Huli and Yariel. Yeah, actually, from this let's take out the international guys because that's it's such a crapshoot there. All right, I, I'll go. Uh, I think it's Giolito for me, um, just because there are so many different ways that we can go on him and we put him at two years uh with like a i think it was a 22 yeah 22 million dollar aav 44 total um and it's just like we kicked around ideas like oh is there a possibility that he still takes four years in like the mid 70s the jameson tyone taiwan walker range of like this guy's a, a number four starter does he want to take just a straight one year deal i mean as recently as august we thought he was getting nine figures and then he just finished absolutely horribly um and so it's just there are a bunch of different ways that I think we could see Giolito going and we sort of assume like, oh, he's going to take a that kind of Rodon-esque two-year pillow contract with an opt-out after year one that allows him to to retest for agency. But we're sort of baking in assumptions there about uh, his level of risk tolerance. And I think there's, you know, I mean, sometimes we see players who just go out there and say, you know what, this is my best chance to secure a life-changing sum of money and I just want to take the maximum guarantee. And if he goes out there and says, hey, I want a max out guarantee, I, I still think somebody would be willing to offer him 70 plus over four years. It's just that would just be a very risk averse way of him approaching free agency. Uh, I think for me, it's probably to Oscar Hernandez. Um, it's a skill set that historically has not been extremely uh, highly valued. He's kind of in that uh, Nick Castellanos, Kyle Schwarber kind of like light defensive value corner outfielder bat first vein but not necessarily hasn't had the like peak that those two had um offensively and also just like he was really good from like late may or early june through you know mid-september but like really terrible around that um he didn't get the qualifying offer which helps but i mean i my thought on him was that we're making a bet that the the lack of bats out there and his broader track record as a guy who's about 25 percent better than average at the plate is going to win out but it was an underwhelming platform season. He's not a great defensive player. And I think a lot of teams could also just look at this as this is a contract that won't age well. And we put down 480 because there's no other alternatives for middle of the order hitters. But would I be stunned if he went out and signed like two years and $34 million or something? No, not really. So it's, it's, there's, there's a wide, wide variety there for sure. My answer is uh, somewhat similar to yours, Steve. I would put uh, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Yeah. there because uh, he's, I considered good- him. He's a good player, but he's never really been a great player. And so it's sort of like, I don't know. 
you know, you could look at like Andrew Benintendi getting 75 million, but also like, I don't know, how much better is Guriel than like, I don't know, Haniger or Soler or guys like that who got capped at three and, you know, sort of. Yeah, you could argue he's he's not better. I mean, you could you could easily argue that he's not. Yeah. So that would be mine. Um, so mine would be Matt Chapman. Um, and I'm only I'm putting that one out there because uh, Steve took Teoscar, who I have quite low confidence in. But I also I mean, the buck did stop with me in terms of like final call on the numbers. And I endorsed and approved the 480 on Teoscar because I found it more likely than the two year deal. But I mean, not like way more likely. So the confidence is kind of low. Um, but with Matt Chapman. There's some dissonance in putting a six-year, $150 million contract on a guy who hit like he did. And it's funny because the unevenness of his hitting just makes it feel so much worse than if he just did like a 110 weighted runs created each month. People would be like, all right, he's a 10% above average hitter and a little upside for more. And that's what he is. And But instead, he went absolutely nuts in April. And then I think he had one other month in the summer was really good. And then in four other months, he was terrible. And there was at least some injury explanation toward the end of the season that that's going to be deployed by Boris. Um, but it was super uneven, weird hitting. And it's not necessarily the, the type of finish that you give $150 million to. Um, so if this one came in at 100, that wouldn't like be a huge shock to me. I would be pretty surprised if he took like the two year pillow contract because I think he's going to be 31 and that would be pretty risky in its own right. Um, So if there is like a hundred plus out there for him, I think he needs to go get it. And I think our logic with Chapman, well, you know, Dara, I'll let you take it from here because I think that you are a pretty pro Chapman guy. I am a pro Chapman guy and I, I opened up his fan graphs page just while you were talking so I could make an informed defense uh, ah. Matt Chapman, as you try to uh, besmirk his good name. Uh, well, what I think I, the season was a little bit underwhelming, but what I think my take on Chapman, there's this narrative taking hold about his 2023 season that he was good in April and then he was bad for the rest of it. Which I think we even like whoever did the write up, like that's how we framed it in our, in the top 50 post. But uh, he was also great in July, and so. I looked at it recently when because uh, he hurt his finger in the like second week of August. If you look through the second week yep. of August, it was like a pretty normal season for him. He had a couple good months, a couple bad months, and he was on a one twenty one uh, weighted runs created plus when he hurt his finger, which is you know he has he was at one eighteen last year, so that's very much a, like a normal season for him up to that point. Three and a half wins above replacement in early August. And then he hurt his finger and was terrible the rest of the way and finished at three and a half wins above replacement, which is his worst full season of his career. Yeah. Three and a half. Every other full season, he's been between 4.1 wins above replacement and 6.3 wins above replacement by fan graphs. So what we saw this season has been his literal floor, three and a half wins above replacement. And so I think in terms of those, like, because of the way the market is where if you're some desperate team like the Giants or whoever, where you're like, we need a guy who we can plug into the lineup and he's going to give us between like four and seven wins above replacement and it's going to be worth the investment, your options are Otani, Bellinger, and Chapman, and that's basically it, those three guys. And so we have Otani on like a different planet. He's up at, you know, we have him over 500 and we have Bellinger at like, you know, 264 or whatever it is. And so if you're 
one of those three teams that's looking for a big splashy free agent signing like are you going to be satisfied with teoscar hernandez or you know whoever that like next tier down is and even just like even if he even if those market conditions weren't what they are this year you look at guys like dansby swanson and uh trevor story Mm -hmm. and javi baez I mean, Chapman's not a shortstop, but it's the same kind of profile where it's like really good defense that gives him like a solid floor and the potential for more if you like believe in the bad and think there's something else there. And so I am a Chapman defender because I like the finger explanation. I think he is like a five win player. And I think uh, especially with the weak market, he can cash in on that. So I agree with all your points. And ultimately, I don't think I would have approved 150 if I did not. However, I will say this. Any free agent who has an extended period of hitting below expectations, the narrative is almost always that A, he was hurt, and B, when he is not hurt, he's going to be good again. And so, like, there's no other explanation because the agent can't be like, well, sometimes baseball players including this one absolutely suck for two months and that just happens but that's like reality but you just can't ever say it if you're marketing a player and then they also can't ever say well yeah this could be a sign that he's on his way down like they just it can never be said it can never be uttered so i mean yeah i i I buy it um and i think like everything you said is true I understand the point that you're saying there, but I think with Chapman, there's like extra credence lended to the injury narrative because it wasn't necessarily, it's, I mean, it wasn't put out by Boris. It was put out by John Schneider. Like he, he was, he had been struggling and John Schneider, when they put him on the injured list, like said, Hey, he's been playing through this. Here's exactly, he, yeah, I guess he didn't say exactly what happened, but it's like, he hurt his finger, his hand in the weight room, like early this month. And he's been trying to play through it while we're doing a, while we're in a playoff push. And like, he just got to a point where like, it was intolerable and he needs to take a break. And yeah, I think all of Dara's points like just are what people are going to miss when they look at Chapman is like, he walks enough and plays good enough defense that like, he's, he's going to have a three thirty on base or, you know, thereabouts at least and and play good enough defense that like at least for the first few years he's not going to be a complete and utter waste unless he just has like you know major injury issues um and the other thing is like the just the real sexy stat cast numbers and we see people get paid off of those sometimes man like he like literally nobody in baseball puts the ball in play at 95 miles an hour or higher more often or at a greater percentage of their balls in play than Chapman. Like it's like 56 and a half percent. It's crazy. Like when he makes contact, he scalds the ball. I think the lesson here is never play through an injury in a walk year. <laughs> so I think as the, uh, I guess probably the low person on Chapman. I, I do think that Dar is right. That the like bias story comp will get him into that like 140 ish range. Um, but I'm probably lower on his projection than anyone else, maybe aside from Tim. And I, I guess I would just buy, and I should mention, I'm I'm the aforementioned author of the uh, Chapman blurb that Dara threw some subtle hate at. Uh, but I, I would buy the uh, it's not <laughs> just you. The, um, injury explanation a little bit more if it were just that his batted ball metrics had evaporated. And like, oh, okay, he's playing through a hand injury and he's not hitting the ball as hard because his hand hurts. But really, I think the biggest driver was the fact that in April, he was making a lot more contact than he had. Mm-hmm. And then the strikeouts just kept going up and up. And they had a little bit of a lull in July, but then they got really, really bad in the second half. 
And strikeouts have been an issue for Chapman for years. I mean, basically his entire career, but especially over the last like three or four years. And to me, I just think it would be an easier through line uh, to say, look, he was playing hurt if it weren't that he were swinging and missing so often. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, does having a sore finger make you swing and miss more often? I don't know. I, I bet maybe <laughs> Boris could say that it does. I don't know. I'm sure he'd find a way. I'm sure he'd find a way. <laughs> um, okay, well, before, I mean, we've already been talking for a long time. Does anybody have any other, like, really hot takes of, like, we've only gotten through, like, the top seven guys on the list. Is there anybody yeah, else? Yeah, remember who when we were like, we can probably talk through, like, half the list at least. Like, no. <laughs> Is there anybody? Um, I, think we've, have we cov- I think we've covered the interesting players. Is there... Should, I know there was I, some Sunny Gray debate. I was going to say, should I should okay. I take up the mantle for Sunny Gray? Yeah, I think um, you should. Also, okay, so I'm I'm the high guy on Sunny Gray. Hello, my name is Steve Adams, and I live in Minnesota, so apparently I'm a biased Twins fan. Um, not really, uh, but I did some some coaxing uh, to get Sunny up to even four years. Um, I wish I had my whole uh, like thing that I wrote and sent out for front office handy in front of me and everything here, but like. I think the big thing that has pushed us off of that, that pushed some of you, you three uh, off of Sunny Gray a little bit, like if he'd had this season at age 32, like you're age 31, like we'd be talking like a much higher contract, obviously, like in a pitcher's age 34 through age 37 seasons are like scary, obviously. Um, and there's not a lot of precedent for I mean, is there any precedent for a 34 year old pitcher getting a, a four year contract? I mean, I guess DeGrom got, you know, five years last year at an older age, but um, he's his own beast but uh i think if you just look back at gray's broader track record throughout his career i i really feel like that that one year with the yankees where he was just terrible and they like openly like said hey we're shopping him like that in my mind has done some like irreparable damage to his reputation like outside of that year like this is a guy who has pretty consistently been you know a three to five win uh above replacement that is not like pitching wins uh pitcher so my thoughts here, like if you like look at him and compare him to Chris Bassett, it's it's you know Bassett had 593 innings with a 329 in his three prior years to free agency. Like Gray was at 660 with a 324 ERA. He has better fielding in, in, fielding independent pitching metrics, better strikeout rate, a little bit worse command, but like more grounders, more swinging strikes, more chases, more whiffs. And Bassett went out and got three years and 63 million dollars with a qualifying offer there was this kind of perception that Bassett is this like steady guy who's going to go out um, and, and really like, you know, solidify you know, your rotation and give you all these innings and all these starts. And I don't think that also lined up with reality. I think the the three years prior, he had been pretty steady and pretty durable um, in a way that Gray maybe has not, but most of Gray's injuries have been hamstrings and quadriceps. He hasn't had like big elbow and shoulder troubles or anything like that. And if you like look at in terms of like wins above replacement, like it was like, Sonny Gray, Blake Snell, and Garrett Cole on Baseball Reference and, and on Fangraphs, it was like Sonny Gray, Zach Wheeler, and Spencer Strider. Like, I think teams are going to look at him and say this is an upper echelon pitcher. He's going to finish second, third, somewhere in that range, fourth in in, in American League Cy Young voting. Um, to me, he's just like a he's just a clear like step above where Chris Bassett was at the same age, and that is that should push him to four years. I think he should probably get 90 to a hundred million dollars. And this is one of the like rare pitching contracts where I actually am like, yes, I think this is a fine value. What we predicted, like even a good value. Um, but I'm not fully confident that he'll get there, I guess, mainly because you guys keep telling me I'm dumb and he's not that good. 
<laughs> so on the, I, I don't like getting bogged down in precedent because precedents are just made to be blown up in free agency. However, our contract tracker, which I touted earlier, um, it goes back to, I think, 2011. And if we look for guys whose new contracts started with age 34, starting pitchers, uh, literally the only one is Jacob deGrom. I think we could agree that Sonny Gray is not Jacob deGrom. Does not Which have is why any... I'm not saying $175 million on us. <laughs> right. True, true, true. So I peeled it back to contracts that start with the age of 33, and I get three others. Those are Hyunjin Ryu, James Shields, and Mark Burley. All of which I would say were regrettable. Um, so, I mean... That doesn't mean, I mean, that they kept happening. So, like, it's not, you know, I, like, I... Well, I get they happened in 2011, 2015, and 2019. So, I mean, four, four years must pass until another... Well, hey, here we are. Here we are in 2023. <laughs> yeah, you got me. You got me. All right. Enjoy your $110 million, Sonny Gray. pattern is holding, and it will not occur again until 2027. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, I, I think he's, he's, uh, it's, it's weird that a guy who's this established and has been around that long, um, feels underrated. But to me, he, he's reached a point like where he feels like I wasn't surprised to see him go out and put up like a five win season this year. And I, I think if you're looking at like through the free agent class and who you feel most confident in going out and putting up, you know, like a four to six win season over the next couple of years, at least like gray is toward the top of that list. And we say all the time, like the, the few years at the back end of the deal are kind of just like a necessary evil. Um, I don't know. But we'll, time will tell. And if he signs for, you know, three years and $66 million or something like that, Anthony can, you know, he can hold it over me forever. And I'll, I don't know, I'll send you some kind of preposterous baseball gift to, uh, as a mea culpa, but I, I like him at four years. And, and I think that uh, there's still a chance that uh, we end up being a little light on him. So we'll see. There's my spicy take. Sunny Gray is good. <laughs> You got Hot me in the mid seventies. I, I started at like Bassett plus, and you you pushed me to four years and like pushing eighty. I, I think ninety is too high. I think he's closer to Bassett than. Well, I just think to be honest that you underrate Bassett a little bit. Ah, uh, it's fine. I I probably do, but I mean he's also a lot better than Taekwon Walker. I mean, granted, older, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, speaking of spicy takes, I think maybe there's a lot of baseball fans who haven't heard of Robert Stevenson, and yet he Ooh, takes yeah. the number Tim Durkis 27 the spot on our list. Uh, that was you, Tim? Yeah. Um, you know, we just stacked up all the relievers and like looked at their numbers and stuff. And um, Stevenson, who was really only awesome for like, you know, I guess two thirds of the season, maybe. Um, but he's nonetheless, he kind of just stood out in terms of uh, strikeout rate. And I think that in most off seasons, there's a reliever that um, just gets like a certain buzz about him and teams have to have him. And I think some level of rationality goes out the window. I think, you know, Drew Pomeranz was, was one of the big examples of that. And I think a lot of the examples of that were done by the Padres. So maybe that's not really a thing, but um to me, he's that guy. And so, you know, I, I pushed him up to the four-year deal worth $36 million. We actually ended up going a little higher on Jordan Hicks, kind of with some of the same thinking. Um, but, you know, I've seen some other predictions for Stevenson that have been like 330. So, I mean, to me, that's almost the same thing. It's kind of like saying, hey, let's just throw a fourth year on this, knock the AAV down a little bit. And so, I mean... I don't think it's quite as bold as it seemed like it was in the beginning to to put the fourth year on there. Um, but yeah, I, I think he's going to be of great appeal. And I think, 
you know, Chad Green's off the market. There's not that many relievers that are exciting this winter. Yeah, and, and Joe, Jimenez, Joe Jimenez was one of yeah. the ones who we were pretty excited about. Um, and, you know, he I, I, there, it feels like there's one of those every year where it's like we feel like really good about having an aggressive prediction on somebody. Yeah. And then they sign the extension or the new deal, like before the list comes out. And it's like, what were we at three and were we at three twenty seven or three thirty on Jimenez? Yeah, and we were it's like, well, we did good on this, but yeah, no. but we don't get to we don't get to to congratulate ourselves for that unless i guess one of us, you know out of the blue brings it up on a podcast yeah <laughs> um but there's that little tier there um stevenson's bat missing is just elite and we'll see like you said pomeran's got paid off of a half season of bullpen work um and got four years just by being like a like a you know one-man wrecking crew so does anybody have like a favorite like sleeper on the list where you're like this guy's going to be like really good value for money? I guess the opposite of the think, question that Tim asked earlier. I think we could give Anthony a little. I mean, Anthony was the one really driving the Michael Walker three year contract. If you want to give a little bit, or uh, Michael uh, Jack Flaherty, confusing my former uh, Cardinal starters here. Sorry. Well, yeah. So I don't know that Jack Flaherty would qualify as a guy that I think would be great value at three for 40. Yeah. Sorry. I kind of changed the, uh, the goalposts there a little <laughs> bit, but I wanted to like, I know, I know Flaherty was the one that you kind of talked us up on and, and we're pushing. So I wanted to give you the the opportunity to, to speak your, your mind. Yeah. Flaherty just seems like, I mean, it's when you get to this point where you're kind of differentiating between all these relatively boring starters who are like, yeah, they're pretty good. They have some things to like about them. They're probably going to get two or three years. Um, but most of these guys are like four or five starters. Usually there's one like each offseason who kind of rises to the top as like an upside play. I mean, we saw last year with Zach Eflin, who we were a little low on. You know, I think Tim was probably correct on Eflin and Steve and I erroneously pushed him down. Oh, I was way down on Eflin. So, yeah, that's and you 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 eventually came around. I was pushing back like this. No, absolutely not. But. In fairness, yeah. I did not. If you had told me he's going to sign with the Rays, I would have said, "Okay, yes, he's going to be great." So, <laughs> uh, so you know, there was Eflin. There was, uh, you know, we saw Yusei Kikuchi a couple of years back. Um, got like three for thirty six, and it was he had had like one good half basically in his like tenure with the Mariners. Um, and he, it was just like he got paid because he threw kind of hard and he missed some bats. And Flaherty, I mean, his year generally was just not good. Uh, both with the Cardinals and following the trade to the Orioles, but his strikeouts were a little bit up after he got traded in Baltimore. And generally speaking, you know, he's, he's young still. He obviously had that great run uh, a few years ago. I think it was 2019, the second half where he was basically the best pitcher on the planet. And I can just see in a way that, you know, if you're a team that's looking through and you're like, okay, we're looking for a mid-level starter. Maybe it's a, a kind of second division team, a, a Tigers or a Pirates. Somebody that's like trying to come out of a, a rebuild, but is never going to be able to pay for an ace level free agent starter who can look at it and say, you know what, we trust our pitching development. And this is the guy who has a chance to be a, a number one or a number two for us if everything goes right in a way that's just really hard to make that argument. If you're looking at Sean Mania or Michael Waka, who are just guys who feel like they're going to be fine, but not impact, like maybe this guy could start a playoff game for us someday. And I think you can sell yourself with that on Flaherty, despite how bad the platform year was. Well said. <laughs> I think I think we've provided enough content here. <laughs> All right, good. Everybody go home. <laughs> well, thank Wait, you so much for home. doing this, uh, guys. It was great to have the full uh, 
I don't know. What do you call it when the news show does the four boxes? Uh, yeah, that's really cool. Really it all, but I think we need to do it more. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm happy to do it whenever. Uh, maybe we should do it at the end of the off season, at least to like come back and look at how wrong all that of the predictions were. That would be, and then, uh, just like why, just why were we wrong too? That's interesting. <laughs> that's, this, for 13. What, what <laughs> this is a good time to unprompted uh, shame myself by bringing up. And I didn't even tell Anthony this before, but cause I was, while I was still on leave, like, so like two weeks ago or something, I don't know. I, a reminder went off on my phone and I was like, what the hell's this reminder? And it was, uh, we were talking around this time last year. And I said, when we were like chatting on Slack or something, I was like, I'm going to set a reminder right now. And it was compare Taiwan Walker versus Zach Eflin. And because I was telling you that, like, as I was telling you, because you hated Taiwan Walker. And I was, and I was so down on Eflin. And I was like, I'm telling you, man, like, I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause I was like, I think, I think Walker is going to have the better year and look like the better buy. Again, I reserve the fact that if you had told me that, Eflin was either one of them was going to go to the Rays. I would have been like, okay, actually, I don't want to make this bet. But well, if, if it had been Walker's going to go to the Rays, then I definitely would have made the bet. But my head, my head is off to you for granting me that victory lap that I had completely forgotten about. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. So that is that is to you to both of you guys. But I, I know I, I made it. I, I went and even like looked back in Slack, and I was talking <laughs> with Anthony after you had signed off for the day, and I was like, I'm going to bring this up next year. And yeah, that didn't uh, that doesn't look great. So. There you go. Anybody who uh, wants to, there's there's fuel for anyone who wants to to, to call me stupid. And uh, yeah, I'm fine with it. I'm wrong about players all the time. I've been doing yeah. this for uh, like we all 10 have, years, we all have 13 a years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Dave Dombrowski was wrong about this one too. He's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. And thank you to uh, the listeners for uh, tolerating this uh, extra super uh, long indulgent episode. Uh, It's been a very exciting week for us, and uh, we're very excited about the upcoming offseason. As mentioned off the top, sign up for the front office thing and uh, give us some money so that uh, we can eat. And uh, we'll talk to you next week and throughout the winter. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Remember to visit MLBTradeRumors.com and follow us on Twitter at MLBTradeRumors.com.